Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, November 15th, 2022 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is jazz multi-woodwind artist, composer, and arranger Ben Kono. Since moving to New York City in 1999, woodwind specialist Ben Kono has been attracting attention as a singular emerging voice in cutting-edge groups like Darcy James Argus' Secret Society and the John Hollenbeck Large Ensemble. With the release of two critically acclaimed recordings, Crossing in 2011 and Don't Blink in 2019, and two Chamber Music America grants, he has now secured his place as a leader and composer of note among his peers. While growing up, in bucolic southern Vermont, a deep love of classical music was fostered by his parents' strong advocacy of the arts and spurred on by a community rich in culture, live music, and arts awareness. Local guitar legend and educator Attila Zoller awakened in Ben an intense interest in jazz emboldening him to continue studies at the Eastwind School of Music and the University of North Texas. During this time, he met future musical pioneers, John Hollenbeck, Henry Hay, and Rudrush Mahnathapa, and studied with jazz greats, Dave Liebman, Jerry Bergonzi, Bill Dobbins, and Gary Campbell. Following a five-year hitch with the United States Army's elite touring group, the Jazz Ambassadors, Kono's broad musical training and experience naturally led him to the infinitely varied musical landscape of New York City. Equally skilled on oboe, English horn, flutes, clarinets and saxophones, his wide range of skills and prowess as an improviser quickly garnered high demand as a sideman. 
He has performed and recorded with, among many others, Michael Brecker, David Liebman, Bob Berg, Kenny Wheeler, Toots Thielemans, Michel Legrand, Tim Garland, Joe Locke, Andrew Rathman, Manuel Valera, Pete McCann, Bill Stewart, Donnie McCaslin, and David Taylor, with superstars Patty Austin, Deborah Gibson, Hugh Jackman, Liza Minnelli, Natalie Cole, and jo Johnny Mathis. And he is a member of the John Hollenbeck Large Ensemble, the Ed Palermo Big Band, Gotham Winds, the BMI Jazz Composers Orchestra, and the New York Jazz Harmonic, and the performed the entire 11-year run of Jersey Boys on Broadway. The eloquent sounds of his woodwinds have graced the stages of Lincoln Center and Carnegie Hall, and he can often be heard tearing up a solo in elite jazz venues like the Blue Note, the Jazz Standard, Birdland, and Les Poissons Rouges. In addition to Mr. Kono's far-ranging career as a performer and composer, Ben has been a committed educator for over 30 years. He has served on faculties at the University of North Texas, Morgan State University, City University of New York, Queens College, Rye Country Day School, the City College of New York, and is a teaching artist for the New York Pops in the New York Public Schools. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Ben Kono. Hello, Ben. Hi, Craig. Great to see you. It's great to see you, uh, and it's great to talk to you and have you as a guest today on my uh, podcast. It's uh, very exciting to uh, to have you on board and to hear what uh, you have to share with my audience. One question I, I ask everybody, because I'm always interested in everybody's origin story. Please talk about who turned, on, turned the light on for you in terms of music. Well, I think it's a light that um, kind of uh, gradually came on over the course of time. But I, for sure, my parents, because even though they uh, weren't musicians um, in any kind of professional sense, um, they were uh, enthusiastic listeners of music. They knew a lot about music and um, they also dabble, <coughs> dabbled in sort of amateur uh, performing um, situations. Uh, at one point, they both belonged to a recorder quartet. Oh. Uh, back, this thing was back when I lived in Boston, you know, as a much younger uh, child back then. And uh, I think I remember hearing a rehearsal and just thinking, wow, I had no idea they could do that. But, um, you know, I just, I just assumed, well, I guess just everybody does that, you know, because they're my mom and dad and that's, you know, they're not like, you know, professional musicians or anything like that. But, um, and so there was always music being played, uh, and listened to in a very focused way. I remember my dad used to just sit on the living room couch and listen to, um, 
pictures at an exhibition, you know, the, the, the Ravel orchestration or, or the Mozart string quartets or, and he, so he was very into classical music and he also knew actually a lot about sort of the structure of classical music. Like he knew what a sonato allegro form was, right? He knew what mm -hmm. all these instruments were. Um, so, you know, I never really had much exposure other than that to music growing up. Um, until, uh, I guess it was fifth grade, um, I came home one day and there was a clarinet sitting on <laughs> the stairs. I had no idea what it was. I opened the box and there's this, you know, bits and pieces that I kind of figured out how to put together and started making noises on it. And of course, my mom comes home and she says, whatever you do, don't open the case or, or put it together or anything like that. That's <laughs> that's for you and your uh, uh, band director to figure out. I said, band director, what is what is what is even that? So there's uh, I grew up in a small town in southern Vermont called uh, Brattleboro. It's in the s southeast corner of I guess for Vermont, it's considered a metropolis <laughs> of like 11,000 people. But um, we had this uh, guy, Jim Curdy, who was my elementary school band director. And he was just such a positive, um, nurturing force for all us kids who were, you know, frankly, at that time, kind of feral. You know, we're just running around and getting into trouble. And here's this thing we can go to after school, which I'm sure is what my mother was thinking was like, you know, I got to keep this this kid out of jail so let's give him a clarinet uh to blow on you know with a bunch of other kids who are in the same situation mm -hmm. so this guy um mr curdy um i mean he's such he was such a revered and loved person in our community and he really got people uh um creating something together you know, mm -hmm. as a group after school. And that was really the first time uh, I'd ever done anything like that. Cause I'm not a, you know, I was never really into sports um, or some kids are into chess. I don't know. <laughs> this was the sure. thing that, that I could uh, really become involved with, with, with other people mm -hmm. my age, you know? Uh, and throughout my career as a young budding clarinetist and uh, move, sort of moving on through middle school and high school, he was always there the whole way. I mean, I stayed in Brattleboro until I uh, graduated high school. So he helped me through all state auditions, um, through uh, even, uh, you know, to some extent, my college search, you know, and, mm -hmm. and then afterwards, you know, he, he was always like talking to my mother's, you know, who I left behind and in, in Brattleboro, of course, and, and asking like, how am I doing out there in the, you know, real music world. And, and even to this day, you know, we're, we're Facebook friends, and he checks in every now and then. So I mean, he was just such a great positive influence musically and he really made it fun you know he mm -hmm. music is something that should be fun and i've always sort of tried to keep that in mind you know mm -hmm. as i you know dig deeper deeper to more complex things but i mean if there's any kind of light that switched on i suppose it was him switching the light for 
mm-hmm. all of us kids, you know, at that at that age. I mean, it's a, I just think it's so important uh, for all kids to be involved with music somehow. But to have somebody like that uh, driving that train, you know, who was those, those people are really special. Those those educators. Well, you know, it's uh, you talk about that idea of of uh, you know, I've always thought that you know, because I've I've taught everything from sixth grade on up. Hmm. And I've always felt like that really my job, at least with younger kids, was to to turn them on to the idea of playing music, that playing music is, you know, regardless of anything else that you do is is really a great thing to do, you know, and, and it's something you can do for your whole life. I mean, you can still you know, still play. I mean, I even joke around when I go out and I'm around younger kids now and I tell them, you know, my age. And I said, can you believe that at my age and I'm still playing music and I still love it and I'm still having fun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, you know, and that's, and they're like, they're kind of like, cause they can't imagine what 67 years old is like, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, that, but then on the other hand, I also work with adult groups that, uh, in one of them, that most of the people are older than I am. And, mm-hmm. uh, the idea is that music is a very powerful medicine. It, it, it's what Absolutely. helps keeps the, the gears greased in the, in the noggin and keeps you, keeps you going, keeps you active. And, and, and uh, like I always like to say, playing music is the most fun you can have with your clothes on. You know? <laughs> so, so, you know, Indeed. So, <laughs> I'm not answering that. Uh, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, is, you know, not only selling young people on the idea, but continuing to sell uh, even uh, older people on the idea of, of why music is an, should be an important part of their life. Uh, you know, so, right. you know, that's, that's the kind of story that you told is, is I, I think about it a lot from the other side. I often warn my college students because the, again, the campus where I teach is, is re- or to have taught, I'm semi-retired. I still do the band. But back when I was a full-time faculty member, I used to tell my students, I I say, look, I'm your band director. That means that I will probably adopt you. And (laughs) so if you have any help, need help, or have any advising needs or anything like that, I know you've been assigned to an advisor, but you can also come to me. You know, right. so you just automatically sounds like in your the case with your teacher, you're you're a mentor, but you're really sometimes more of a more than a mentor. You're also a overseer, caretaker. I don't know how what what it is or why, but we sure. just tend to be that way. Absolutely. I mean that that was uh, no more uh, evident than when the pandemic uh, came down, and I had, you know, I uh, I was teaching at uh, City College, and I had this group of of um i was kind of overseeing the small jazz ensemble uh department there and uh suddenly we were cast to the wind you know we had and uh, you know had students from from all over the world in this this class and suddenly they're you know they're like well god what's happening what's so then your role becomes sort of less uh, you know sometimes we would meet on zoom because we were supposed to continue with classes somehow remotely um, which, as an ensemble class, just was really kind of difficult to do. We 
kind of did some remote recording projects, but really I felt like my role at that point was more like sort of controlling anxiety. You know, everybody had these different, like, you know, now I'm sent back to, uh, you know, what's going to happen, you know, when I, when I get out of school, I mean, is there going to be a music scene anymore? Everything just stopped, you know, it was, it was a scary time for everybody. Yes, it was. And, uh, you know, I felt like, um, like you said, like, uh, you know, when you're, when you're teaching music or, or just participating in music, you have this sort of bond, this connection that mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have with, uh, an English professor in a lecture hall, right? So yeah, um, I felt like a lot, at least some of my students were definitely reaching out to me like, mm -hmm. you know, I need some help here. <laughs> well, it, it, it's some moral support, you know, I was gonna say it becomes a family. It, mm -hmm. I guess you could say it becomes a family or at least it becomes a tribe. Yeah. And, and absolutely, you, uh, you find that bond through music. And, and it's funny how that sort of thing continues. Because like, you know, you could go anywhere and, uh, and I, you know, and once you locate other musicians, it's like, yeah, everything's cool. You've got somebody to, to I, I know when I first moved to Waukesha, I didn't know a soul in mm. Wisconsin. I knew absolutely no one other than the associate dean or the deans that hired me. So what was the first thing I did? I joined the local community band. Yeah. You know, and it's like immediately <coughs> I've got, you know, I've got 50, 60 friends because we all like the same thing. And that's what I tell high school students. I would teach this. Even if you don't major in music, join the band. Yeah. Because then you'll have a lot of friends right away that that uh, people that will be, uh, you know, on the same uh, wavelength as you are because they'll love music just as much as you do. So it's. It's always kind of a kind of a great great uh, um, thing. Yeah. <laughs> the dust that washes away. What was it? Who was it that used to have that great quote? Was it Blakey? Art Blakey used to say, "Music mm. is the what washes away the dust of life," or something like that. <laughs> anyway, it cleans well, us up and cleans us off and makes everything well. But you're right about the pandemic. That was a, that was a hard time, and it was weird getting back. Oh my gosh! At least yeah. it was for me. I remember yeah. the very first rehearsal I went to, after you know it was okay, and it just felt weird because I've seen people I hadn't seen in almost a year, and it's like you know, well, I know we kind of know what we're doing here, but you know, it feels weird, you know, because yeah, everything. well, it's a it's a muscle like everything else, you know, the... exactly, exactly. I mean, and, and fortunately too, it's also like riding a bicycle because once you got mm -hmm. on and got going again, you remembered mm -hmm. and. And everything seemed to kind of return to uh, mm -hmm. back to what it was. Well, you've talked about, you know, what got you into music. So what turned you on to jazz? Well, that really was like almost like an immediate light switch because uh, I was really into uh, playing clarinet in band and, and in orchestra. And I got pretty serious with clarinet fairly early on. Mm -hmm. um, uh, those are my people, you know, th just mm -hmm. playing with other musicians. Uh, and uh, so by the time I got into high school, I was always already kind of playing at a fairly high level for a clarinetist. And mm -hmm. um, I thought, well, this is just kind of, you know, this is the, this is the path that I'm on or you know, whatever that was going to lead to, you know, maybe 
uh, maybe I would, I, I never really considered majoring in music, but like you said, like continuing on in music in some capacity, but uh, in my, I think it was maybe my sophomore year of high school, I heard our high school jazz band play. Mm -hmm. And there were these two kids, uh, they were upperclassmen, they were like, you know, seniors, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. so old, you know, I mean, <laughs> they were like, they were like adults to me, yeah. you know, uh, but they had been to um, the Eastman summer jazz uh, camp during mm -hmm. the summer and, and come back and were just like playing great jazz, I mean, for... Mm -hmm you know, great high school jazz, whatever that is. But uh, to my ears, when I heard it, it just, it was nothing like nothing I'd really heard before. I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know high school students could do that, could mm -hmm. improvise, mm -hmm. could just play like completely free of the music, you know, mm -hmm. and of course they weren't playing completely free of it, but to, to what I saw was they were just making stuff up out of thin air. And, and the energy that they were creating by doing that was just like i i want to do that that's this mm -hmm. is suddenly suddenly my my arc completely changed you know mm -hmm. um the direction that i was going in like this is this is something different so i started messing around with that on clarinet and i went to the band director uh at the high school i said um i want to i want to do jazz band next year he said yeah that's that'd be great for you to do but mm -hmm. um uh we don't really have parts for clarinet you're gonna have to learn saxophone i <laughs> said you know to today if I, if I had a kid come up to me and said i was just like okay well play clarinet play whatever play bassoon play whatever you want mm -hmm. and uh and we'll make it work but uh i took that as a challenge and i said okay i'm gonna learn saxophone and i learned saxophone in like basically like two weeks <laughs> i had to because it was i had to join the marching sure, band and then sure. and then so that was a deadline and i had to basically figure it out for myself um and then uh but that that fire that initially happened when that light switch went on just kind of never went away okay now i play saxophone i can kind of coast no it was just like okay now i play sax what's jazz you know what's that so now i've got to figure that out and then um you know my town uh it's a beautiful town it's it's what you think of when you think of vermont there's like you know white houses with green shutters spectacular fall foliage there's you know people collecting sap in their backyard to make maple syrup and <laughs> I, you know ice skating on the the, the local pond in the winter, you know, but at the same time, there's a pretty th healthy, thriving music scene there. Mm -hmm. um, surprisingly so. I mean, there's the Marlboro Music Festival that's just a few minutes down the road. There are a lot of, a lot of mu uh, chamber music uh, festivals there. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the Boston Symphony musicians would kind of take residency in that, that town over the summer. So the, mm -hmm. there was a really healthy classical music vibe there all the time and I and it was just sort of I was exposed to it through my parents and just through school and um, sometimes I would see uh, Blanche Moise she she was the director of the uh, Bach Chorale which was this 
really prestigious uh, group. A lot of New York musicians played in that. And I would you would see her like walking down uh, Main Street with listening to a Walkman and it's just conducting air. You know? So it's that kind of that kind of a town, you know, it was like sure. a, in some ways it was like a small New York. Um, but we also had this guy named Attila Zoller. He was a guitarist, uh, I think from Romania originally. And he he was kind of in the sort of avant-garde scene in the 1960s in, in New mm -hmm. York. And then he moved right. up, I think in like the maybe the early 70s uh, mm -hmm. to Vermont and just settled there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, rather than give up music, he brought, rather than give up the New York music scene, he brought the New York music scene to Vermont. <laughs> so he started this thing called the Vermont Jazz Center, which is still very much um, alive today. Uh, it's run by a different um, person, Eugene Uman, who's done really great things with that program and kind of put it on the national map. Um, but at the time, it was very rustic. So. During the summer, he would have like a sort of a informal jazz class, master class, and invite students from different colleges. He would he would invite musicians up from New York who would bring their students. Is basically what would happen. Okay. So, um, so you would walk into like there's this there was this little um, uh, blues club called the Molzai Cafe in downtown Brattleboro, and I. I walked in there one day, I think it was, I think maybe I was a senior in high school by then. And I walked in and Jimmy Heath was playing and John Abercrombie, the guitarist. Oh my. George Mraz was playing bass. Uh -huh. um, uh, I think it was um, Elliot Zygmunt, a drummer, played oh with Bill Evans. You know, he was, mm -hmm. he was playing in there. I mean, I met like all these new new famous new york cats in like this yeah, little lightweights little di yeah this <laughs> little dive of a and and until it would see me and he would say you know hey man did you bring your horn? like gesture like did you bring your saxophone and i would run home <laughs> yes uh, i was like a you know like a 10 minute walk i think i ran uh -huh. it for like five minutes grab my horn and then run back and and then play with these guys and it was just oh, like wow. like what an exposure as a you know young person um uh to that kind of music so uh yeah i mean it's it was great place to grow up and learn how to ski and mm -hmm. play play hockey on the local sure uh pond but also like there was uh, this other thing that was wow. kind of beckoning me away from 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 uh you know small town life yeah that's 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 really awesome it's amazing where where you can find you know those kinds of gems you know where yeah. uh you know the great you know people turn up um i know uh several weeks ago actually it's been more than that it's been probably two or three months ago i and interviewed george schuler oh yeah and he's uh, of course he's also producing some movies and one of the movies that he's produced is about the the uh the inn up in uh in massachusetts where all, oh. a lot of musicians i think it's massachusetts anyway, are you talking about the the deer, the deer head in or is it i don't recall oh, now unfortunately okay. i should have brought it up without knowing where i was going but but anyway um i he sent me a couple of clips so i could preview the films and and mm. and it's just awesome how this whole thing got started back in the 50s with all these jazz musicians you know coming together 
And then there were people that said, okay, well, it's fun to play jazz, but let's talk about jazz. Let's talk about what it is, about its origins mm -hmm. and about, you know, I mean, this was really that at that time when, when jazz was, was maturing to the point where it was talked about more as an art music than as a you know just strictly uh, uh, dance music or or entertainment music and uh, so anyway um, he uh, he had that he also produced a, a film on the modern jazz quartet which used to be one oh, wow. of the groups that would regularly be at this this uh, particular locale and so you know and it's really great to have those sort of things and um where artists kind of can flock together and 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 you know you as a resident of the the small town can really be a beneficiary of of those experiences and things that maybe people who live in remote areas rural areas whatnot may not necessarily have until they they go to a larger city so that's really fantastic well Ben, I want to fast forward a little bit now. We've talked about kind of your origin stories. I want to get now to more to, you know, the here and now and just point blank ask you, what are the major challenges of being a jazz artist in the 21st century? Well, um, I mean, I think, I think it's always been just making a living. How do you make a living from this music? It's, mm -hmm. It's the economics of being uh, a creative artist. Um, uh, you know, that that trope of the starving artist didn't just come out of thin air. I mean, it's always like yeah. trying to find a balance of like uh, uh, how much, um, how, do you, how do you support yourself in order to, to make this music? And how do you do it in a way that you know, it, you can still leave space to, to be a creative musician. Um, I know being in New York City, I know people who uh, are full time uh, artist musicians, creative <clears throat> creatives. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of them are very good at writing grant proposals and um, just basically you know, putting everything into uh, furthering their solo careers or their career as a composer or, mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, I, that, that was never really what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just wanted to play. I mean, I'm more at a point now where I'm looking at, well, you know, the, the really digging into the creative aspects of what is it that I want to contribute to music right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. as opposed to just being a, a, a side band um but uh and having say, said that uh i i love being a side man and i see nothing um uh nothing um there's nothing shameful about playing somebody else's music because you really, you know, to, to do that, you really have to take it seriously. You have to take their music seriously and you have to do a lot of work. Mm -hmm. uh, and just because it's not your own creative output doesn't mean you can't add your own uh, contribution to the music. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back to your question, the challenges of 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 uh, tw- especially a twenty first century jazz music- musician, I I would say especially within the last few years, technology, because mm-hmm. it's made it so easy to um, basically listen to music for nothing. And uh, I think people are feel very entitled to getting music for nothing. And then where does that leave the artist? The artist can't support themselves and create new music uh, on nothing. So so this is you know really damaging cycle that's happening where especially with once the streaming thing started happening i mean the percentage of a stream that goes to an artist uh is it's it's just it's infinitesimally small i mean you'd have to have like millions of streams to even like come close to uh putting gas in your car mm-hmm. <laughs> i had um and it's weirdly, it's uh, it's the younger generation I feel like that has really bought into this this mm-hmm. sort of corporate take massive corporate takeover of um, of the artist, and it's always been there. I mean, it's it's always you know the people that uh, control the music are usually not the artist. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's it's bigger kind of corporate. Uh, conglomerates that own the labels and that own YouTube and uh, Spotify, and, uh, and they're doing great. <laughs> but sure. on the other, at the other end of it, you know, the artist gets nothing. I mean, I, I remember getting my first uh, paycheck, <laughs> if we can call it that, from uh, my first record, and. Um, and it showed, I think it was like through CD Baby. So they kind of do like a whole bunch of different mm-hmm. um, yeah. services. They do like, you can sell your CDs. And I would see like, you know, the prices of CDs. You you could sell it through Apple iTunes, which at that time at least was, uh, you would actually pay for individual tracks and the artist would get, mm-hmm. you know, a fairly large percentage of that at least. Uh, but then at the bottom, there was this streaming thing. And... I think the total was like like a fraction of a cent. I mean, it was like astonishing to me. And then mm-hmm. and then that was at the beginning of the whole streaming model. And then uh you know, gradually like like almost nobody even has a CD player anymore. So, yeah. you know, bringing CDs to a gig, it's like, well, let's see if people buy it. But so anyway, getting back to um the younger generation, I had the student uh, who during one of my lessons said, I want to hear some of your music. I said, well, I actually have a couple of CDs in my backpack. Yeah, I can't, I can't actually give them to you, but I'll give them to you for like $5, you know, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, basically at cost for, yeah, for exactly. me. Um, and then he said, no, no, I'll just check it out on Spotify. I said, well, I, I don't have it on Spotify. And he looked at me incredulously, like, why isn't your music on Spotify? Mm-hmm. I said, well, because uh, because I could sell one CD and basically make like the, the same amount I would make from like a thousand streams. Right. That's why, you know, for like the, the cost of 
you buying a, a CD for $5 is about what I would make in one month of streaming. Mm -hmm. He said, but nobody will hear your music then. I said, well, uh, maybe less people will hear music, but, but then also like, what is the quality of listening that happens with Spotify? You've got like 5 billion choices. You've got a billion choices on Spotify of, of listening to music and how much of that is like really focused listening. So, uh, so I think technology has made it easier for the consumer to get music, but made it much, much more difficult for the artist to sure. actually create that music. And I think it's also really affected the way we listen to music. We're not listening to it live. We're listening to it, you know, coming out of a box and it's, it's not the same listening. No, experience. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, you know, the thing about music is it's a communally made and communally consumed art form. Um, you know, and yeah, I think technology has really been a double-edged sword. It's some aspects of it have been great. Right. Others, you know, you know, you, you talk very, very well about, about the downside. I'm still waiting for my first $20 check <laughs> for an album I released almost three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so I, I understand that. But by the same token, I'm playing this Friday, I'm playing at a club in uh, Lake Mills, Wisconsin. And it's I went and checked it out last week. It's a real nice room. I mean, gosh, nice setup, beautiful stage, uh, really, you know, nice, classy looking place. And the club is guaranteeing us a certain uh, amount. And... Um, uh, plus uh, tips and, you know, I guess probably a part, portion of the door, but they're also going to be live streaming our performance. Right. Now, I'm not balking at that because in my position, my group, we just started back up again. So I need all the exposure we can get, even if it costs me money rather than making money. Because, I, you know, right now my group, uh, we just started rehearsing again in December and uh, and that's kind of been piecemeal because I've had people in and out sick and I've had personnel changes and so on. So, you know, I'm not complaining about them, you know, doing that. But if they were to do that all the time and people were able to get it free all the time, yeah, that'd be a drag. I mean, because, uh, you know, people forget that musicians are, are people, too, and we have to put uh, food on our table and, and clothes on our backs and we have to pay for the gas to get us to where we're going and so on. Right. And I'll, I would bet you that probably there are very few, if any, people under the age of 20 that own a CD. No, CD I guess I'll answer that to you. <laughs> no, yeah. but um, but uh, you're right. It's a double edged sword. So yeah. um, it's much easier to uh, make a recording now. I mean, you could make mm -hmm. it in your living room. And uh, oh, yeah. as you know, Billie Eilish has done and, you know, went multi platinum with her records, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's enabled a lot more uh, music to be made. And a lot of that music is very, very good. Um, there's also some pretty mediocre music that comes out of that too. But yeah. uh, the your point is taken that um, you know it's it's way easier and way cheaper to get your music out there, mm -hmm. and and uh, you're able to reach people like you're you're streaming. You're able to reach people in 
um, the Ukraine, for example, or, or oh, sure. you know, all across the world. Uh, so the challenge is, you know, how do we, how do we um, uh, come how do to terms? Happy, how do we f find a happy medium? Right, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think it's, I think it's really like, um, uh, figuring out how, how to get the music out of big corporate entities like, like Google and, and, uh, and Apple, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, um, I mean, you know, the, my last record I, I self-released, uh, the record mm -hmm. I, I did before that was on a label. Um, but I found that, uh, I actually did better with my self-released record than the one mm -hmm. with the label because I was much more invested in it as the owner of the music. Mm -hmm. And uh, I put a lot more work into getting it out there. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, it, it's an uphill battle, but I mean, I think that's what kind of what we have to do as artists. And then, mm -hmm. you know, maybe we have to do something else to figure out how, you know, again, finding a balance of what our, you know, what we career think, is to, to, to put food on the table on that. Right. You know, it's like when you were talking, I was thinking is I was thinking, you know, over the centuries, musicians just can't win. We either had to rely on the patronage system of hmm. the aristocracy, or right. now we have to rely upon the uh, little bits and pieces that the corporate world hands out. And, and if we, we've made an art form uh, into a, a profit, a, a profit gaining sort of game. I, I, I don't know if that's right, wrong, or indifferent, but we somehow need to look at art as something that contributes to the quality of life and uh, the quality of our culture and see if we can't find a way for those people who do profit from the music industry to give back to the artists in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. I, I don't know if I'm suggesting a, a, a welfare system for musicians or yeah, just maybe. ways to, to help support uh, our creativity and, and uh, the creation of the art we make. I, you know, I, I, I don't have the answer, but it's, Maybe in there somewhere. Cap, cap and trade. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess. Anyway. Hey, well, let's switch gears from, uh, to, from that to maybe something on a happier note, a more positive <laughs> note. Um, you know, I would very much like to hear you talk about your various approaches to the <laughs> elements of music as a performer and a composer that you take to create different colors and forms of musical expression. Um, well, I think, uh, your, your descriptive word color there is, um, is, is, uh, for me kind of a key to my own music. I mean, if you've, if you listen to any of the records that I've, uh, produced and put out, um, there's a lot of different colors going on. And, uh, a part of that I think comes from my, uh, early exposure to classical music mm -hmm. um, and my love of orchestration. I've always had the sound of 
a lot of different instruments um, coming together to produce uh, uh, kind of a different sum of sound, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. um, I think very orchestrally, even as a as a jazz performer, mm -hmm. um, I do my own projects involve a lot of uh, multiple woodwinds because that's that's kind of what I do mm -hmm. as a uh, career. I am a professional woodwinds player, so that puts me in a lot of different musical uh, situations, whether it's like uh, theater or new music or. Mm -hmm. uh, orchestral music i still do a lot of orchestral music mm -hmm. uh and as well as playing jazz and uh i also do a lot of big bands so mm -hmm. um in fact uh probably uh at least for a while the bulk of my playing in new york was with different big bands including ji hey lee's mm -hmm. uh, music who you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. uh, uh so that gives me like kind of a different way of composing and a different way of playing. For example, uh, I play double reads sometimes mm -hmm. in, in uh, live performances and on on uh, recordings. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the instrument itself kind of dictates a lot of what I will write and the way I improvise. Um, the English horn is a very quiet sounding instrument. So uh, to play, you know, as you know, I, I would I wouldn't try to play like impressions <laughs> with like an Elvin Jones type of drumming behind me because you would just never hear the right. instrument, right? And I would never hear it. It's and I mean that's I think that's why you know for example uh, there aren't a lot of great uh, flute jazz flute players compared to jazz saxophone players mm -hmm. because it's just too hard to to play over that kind of setting. So you have to kind of reimagine what this what the setting is. First of all, you'd have to think more orchestrally. Uh, maybe the drums are on hand drums or maybe uh, mm -hmm. the guitar is an acoustic guitar, you know, um, and uh, maybe it's, you know, to, to try to swing on oboe, for example, is very difficult just because the keys themselves tactilely are just so close to the instrument there's no uh, what with the saxophone there's more distance when you move your finger and there's more uh there's more nuance that you can achieve in between mm -hmm. notes uh as opposed to where you know if you're playing the oboe or english horn you you pretty much have to think about every single note that you're mm -hmm. playing mm -hmm. otherwise it just sounds terrible uh so you have to kind of think um differently uh, melodically and rhythmically the way you play those instruments same with flute i mean mm -hmm. uh, i i don't i play i i, I try to play uh similar uh melodic and rhythmic concepts throughout my different instruments but the way i play them on on the different instruments is usually very different Mm -hmm. Even even like going from soprano saxophone to tenor saxophone mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. a big jump. And you can hear that in, for, uh, to bring up John Coltrane's name again, you can hear the way they that he plays those different instruments is quite different. Mm -hmm. So uh, when you start bringing in all these like bass clarinet and all these different um, traditionally orchestral woodwinds into the mix, 
uh, it kind of forces you to really think differently. And, uh, and I like that. I like, I like releasing records where every track sounds very different. Each one has mm -hmm. like a different, um, even like the last two records I recorded, even though they're, they're technically sweets and kind of have like a connecting theme between them, you don't really hear, you don't really get bored listening to it because each track has got a different color to it. It's got a different mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. vibe and uh, is treated very differently. And I kind of choose my uh, musicians, my side musicians, with that in mind, you know, with what mm -hmm. kind of instrument am I playing and what can they bring to uh, combine with this instrument that will create a very unique and individual sound. So like uh, my first record, um, my friend, uh, I had my friend John Hollenbeck play, who's sort of a real great, like, conceptualist on the drums, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't really think of him just as a drummer. I think of him as, like... He's got this entire palette of color, mm -hmm. and then my la uh, then my last record, uh, Satoshi Takeshi played um, mostly percussion on it, mm -hmm. and um, both these guys have played with in many different uh, settings, and and I was hearing how they were playing with, for example, string instruments, and um, and started imagining how that would sound playing with alto flute or English mm. horn, for example. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I guess, you know, my, uh, concept of the elements of music comes from, um, my background in classical music. I know I was a classical mu music major too. I mean, I have sure. studied, uh, when I was actually, when I was at North Texas, I played in, um, you know, the one o'clock big band the big the jazz their flagship jazz band but i was a classical clarinet major so okay. i also played in the orchestra and wind ensemble mm -hmm. and um so i've brought the, those sort of two very seemingly different elements um mm -hmm. al along with me on this journey and and kind of used that as like a springboard for a lot of what i write you know i i i, I could hear that i think in a lot of your music i've listened to and and then when you've talked about your experiences and i uh, i had forgotten you know the idea but but you i can hear it i think i can hear it that you know your classical background because mm -hmm. of the of the, the the tone that you play uh you know and and so forth um and i uh i really like that that mix of sounds with different uh woodwind instruments but I also really enjoyed the, uh, I always include in my show notes. So if listeners are interested, they can go back. I've got a couple of links in there to uh, some of the YouTube uh, videos that you've posted oh, with your work with strings. And hmm. I thought, you know, the first thing that came to my mind, I thought your work with strings, the writing for the strings was very unique uh, in this way. Usually, I, I, you know, we very often think of great jazz musicians who've recorded with strings. I mean, Clifford Brown with strings and, and right. Chet Baker with strings, you know, and stuff like that. And the strings are just kind of like this lush mm -hmm. kind of background. Right. I thought, and certainly disagree with me if, if I'm wrong, because it's your music, but it sounds to me like in your music, the strings are very much in the forefront of things. 
and they are as rhythmic and they are as uh, assertive in terms of what they're creating sound wise there is nothing that's just lush mm. fluffy background at all in terms of the way you've written for strings i really enjoy listening to that and uh, i found that to be a, a very um, refreshing take on writing for strings well i'm so glad you picked up on that uh that's that's my last uh my most recent project it was a um chamber music america grant um that i received in 2018 and my concept was uh um to use use my existing uh quintet uh that i've been my working group that i've been playing with for years mm -hmm. but to really start with a string quartet mm -hmm. and woodwinds and then work outwards from that mm -hmm. um and the only way i could have done that is uh having these particular string players uh, in my group who mm -hmm. I've worked with for many years in different capacities. So Sarah Caswell is like, you know, just a phenomenal jazz violinist as is uh, Meg Okora. I've played with both of them in a lot of different uh, contexts. Uh, Lois Martin, um, Jody uh, Redditch-Ferber, uh, who are both like great improvisers, not necessarily uh, jazz players per se, but um, the four of them have played together in, you know, backed up. Uh, three of them were uh, actually on a tour, uh, used to tour with Esperanza Spalding's group. So they, they really play well together as well as, uh, as well as they are, you know, phenomenal improvisers. Mm -hmm. So I, I wrote specifically with those musicians in mind, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, um, and then um, just saw what would come out of that. Um, and uh, like every one of my uh, projects, when we when we all get into the room together, um, uh, I always I always say that my my tunes are only half done before I bring it to the first rehearsal, uh -huh. because then once that happens, all these other musicians like start uh, giving me. Uh, feedback sure, on sure. what could be better you know maybe we could do this maybe we could do that and by the time you leave it's like oh that's what was missing or you know this now it feels like a finished piece of music uh mm -hmm. even though like you know i feel like i've just like well i've just but i wrote everything out so um sometimes what you write <laughs> is not really uh um the best thing until you have um the humans playing it back and then and then you realize, oh, okay, that needs to be something else, and this needs to be something else. But um, I, I think that sort of collective creativity is awesome. I mean, it's 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 yeah, it's so much of a different approach of like when you go into a session and everything is already set in stone and it needs to be this way or that way. And I, there's nothing wrong with that because when you go to work for somebody who's already got a very firm concept of what they want, you have to respect that. But I love that that you, when you say you go in with a with a, when you go with a new chart, it's really only halfway done, because right. you do uh, have these musicians that you trust, and you trust not only their ability on their instrument, but you trust their musicianship, you trust their music sensibilities, to make suggestions that makes the overall uh, product even better, because I think you know. 
I mean, I, I mean, I love that kind of thinking because that's the way I like to work. You know, uh, even when I go into into band rehearsal, and I, you know, I still am conducting the band at the university. And but when I go into rehearsal and I tell the members of the band, I said, "Look, I'm conducting this piece this way today, but I may change my mind." So you know, you, because this is a work in progress. Nothing's in cement. You know. Music is the most plastic of the art forms. We can make changes. We think it, let it, we let it evolve. We let it grow, you know, as it goes. And it sounds like you like to do that in your work as well. And you've got a yeah. great group of musicians to surround yourself with. So yeah, that helps too. Yeah, I mean that the 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 back and forth is is like my ba my favorite thing. I mean just the the constant um, interaction that goes on during doing music making right mm -hmm. and that's what was so frustrating and deadening about the pandemic was we couldn't get mm -hmm. together in the same room and you know trying to uh i actually wrote a big band uh project during the pandemic because i it was, for the first time i had the time to do it in in many years and and then trying to uh, rehearse it remotely, which was impossible. I mean, you basically mm -hmm. basically had to write everything out exactly as it was going to be recorded, and then they would record it uh, remotely. And that was instructive in and of itself. But like, I never want to do that again. That was just like <laughs> it was. Uh, and then it came back, and it's like I know if I you know tomorrow I went into a room with the same musicians, it would sound completely different by the time I left. Uh, rehearsal that day it was just like sure. oh god that whole thing needs to go exit out you yeah. know or yeah. or let's want put this thing that i have in the front let's put that on the back or vice versa right yeah. you know so there's all these things that just happen uh with people that you and people that you really liked to to be with that's also important you know i always surround myself with just great people you know that sure. i would like to hang out with even, you know, without an instrument in our hands, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I, if you don't like the people you're around, no. you know, there's something wrong with that. <laughs> there is, but there's, it's a surprising amount of music that I've made over the years where it is just that. Yeah, so that's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah. I like the line. Where did I, oh, I was watching Ted Lasso. I, it's a f f great show. And he's trying to calm something down mm. between a couple of players on the team that don't. He says, I don't care if you don't like each other, but I expect you to respect each other <laughs> you know, and work yeah. together. Well, anyway, Ben, I'm going to kind of combine two questions here. Sure. One, and that is what motivates you to write? And when you get motivated to write, what comes first? Melody, rhythm, chord changes, lyrics? particular mood what usually hits first when you're motivated to write hmm. and what what leads you to want to write well the the easiest answer to that is a deadline because <laughs> um, i mean uh, let, me I, let me write I, that let me chalk yeah yeah i was gonna say I, i'm sure somebody's i'm sure somebody has said that before but yeah it's it's really true i mean if i don't have a deadline um then uh I'm, it's probably not going to get done okay. so uh but that deadline could be, you know, I mean, I've obviously if you're working with a grant project, um, there are a lot of deadlines that are built in um, and uh, it's very it's very well laid out and um, it's externally created. Uh, but even just having like a rehearsal um, 
just say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna book a rehearsal for some new music that I actually haven't written yet. That will force you to write some mm -hmm. music because you don't want to show up with empty handed, right? So uh, during the pandemic, we didn't have really had none of that. We couldn't get together and rehearse. We could do we could create a deadline by saying, I don't know, on this such and such a date, I'm going to post something on YouTube, right? So some people, I did some of that, but uh, I had some uh, friends that got together. We've done this before. Um, there's this uh, sort of composer's co-op that occasionally shows up. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, this is sort of the brainchild of this really great saxophone player and composer, uh, Will Vinson. He's he's from I think he's from England originally, but he's been in New York for many, many years. Uh, and then my very good friend, Henry Hay, who I went to uh, mm -hmm. college with. Henry. And, yeah. And uh, we've we've collaborated on many things together. And I get this email saying from Henry saying, we're going to do this thing called Tune Club. And uh, basically what it is, is uh, a group of composers. We've all sort of invited each other to this. Um, it's strictly online and strictly uh, strictly for fun, really. But but really what it is, is it's it's an excuse for us to it's it's a deadline that we make for each other mm -hmm. to write music. Mm -hmm. So um, we have like a shared Dropbox that we will upload uh tunes to and it's kind of like a round robin so one person will start it off and saying okay for the next two weeks we have to write a uh, 40 measure piece of music um based on five notes and it can be any five notes you want or um or we're going to write a 12 tone piece or you're, we're going to write a piece that is the color blue. You know, it could be as vague as that, sure. or it could be more specific. But anyway, the the main part of it is you've got two weeks to write it, and then you have to upload it uh, onto uh, this communal Dropbox. You have to upload a PDF of the music and some kind of recording of it, which could be an iPhone recording or it could be a MIDI. It could be as simple as you just sitting down on the piano and you know going through it. Um, and then you know there could be some feedback uh there usually is mm -hmm. uh great job hey i like that thing you did there um or there could be not any feedback at all it doesn't matter like so wh whoever was the the appointee to create this project will then nominate one of the other people who just uploaded a, a piece of music and and then that person does the same thing so it's like these this two-week cycle of just always writing and man i wrote a lot of music during the pandemic just from that and actually one of them ended up i ended up turning into a big band uh arrangement uh later on um but uh those kinds of things are important just having like some kind of a deadline even if it's just a reading of music that doesn't even exist yet, you know, or, or just sketches, you know, it, um, and suddenly like, you know, the heat's on and you've got to produce something because so much of comp composition is like, you know, 10% inspiration and then 90% work, just working right. it out. Right. Um, and then as far as, uh, uh, what I, 
what I think of or what 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 was the other question well, like, how do I get started yeah yeah when what what hits first a melody a rhythm chord changes what what usually comes to you first when you start to write yeah all of all of that all, all of, of the above all of the above it could be um probably the the one I I least use is a set of chord changes I don't okay. really think quarterly when I write um uh usually what starts is maybe like a snippet of a melody um mm -hmm. but that melody could be just it could be literally that just that just like a set of pitches but with no rhythm mm -hmm. and then i have mm -hmm. to just kind of work out like what that rhythm is going and oftentimes you know that melodic fragment i'm almost always thinking of some sort of counterpoint to it like mm -hmm. one other melodic line that kind of fits with it uh and just anything that anything that i can get on the page like just putting some notes on the page uh as a starting point and then from there you use all your tools to try to expand on that you know if it's like mm -hmm. augmentation diminution retrograde inversion all, all these sort of theoretical concepts that you've uh learned th throughout the years studying music you know you could apply these and just experiment with them until you right and a lot of times i'll do that like away from any kind of keyboard or instrument and uh i remember my first record uh i had some music on there that um uh we had this i had i had this um routine where i would i was playing a lot of like uh broadway theater work back then and i would come home late at night and it was my duty to walk the dog once I got home because <laughs> <Okay. And, laughs> my wife was usually asleep by then. Um, and uh, so I would take the dog out in uh, upper Manhattan where we lived. And and it was sort of like the Zen moment where I'm just like I'm kind of like fried from the whole <laughs> uh, energy of, of the gig and then even just like getting on the subway to get home and then you know, I'm in this really quiet, peaceful neighborhood with this dog, with nothing to do but walk, walk this dog. And that's when I would do a lot of my composing in my head. I would just like, mm -hmm. my brain was like, it was a way of sort of almost like meditation, just kind of like, okay, I can focus on mm -hmm. the, this that I was, I came up with this yesterday. I wonder if I could remember it, you know? And then of course, then you knew you have to put it down on paper as soon as you get back and mm -hmm. uh, with the dog, otherwise you won't remember it the next day but um uh you're you brought up lyrics i've recently um the my most recent project i've been working on is uh weirdly enough an opera um okay. and this this woman who has this company in boston just kind of heard something that i'd written on, on posted on youtube and said uh you know, I've been talking to some other people and your name has come up several times and I'd like you to write an opera, like an opera. Oh, I don't know anything. Cool. About, I don't know anything about opera. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, of course I said, yes, absolutely. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not knowing anything about it. Um, and, uh, so, uh, this is a, it's not a whole opera. It's like a, a collaboration with some other composers were each like taking like a chunk of this opera mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. kind of stringing it together um and we each are paired with a different librettist so i ended up with this libretto this 
this basically this you know several sheets of prose to work with and um uh the first thing i did was kind of like you know after like talking with the librettists it's like okay this this stuff is sort of more of an aria kind of form and um needs to be more melodic and then this part is more this dramatic recitative kind of area um i basically took the words and just uh recorded myself uh speaking them over and over and over again mm -hmm. and kind of like listening back and like that just sounds like gibberish oh that kind of sounds uh has more of a rhythmic vibe to it and then f finding recordings uh, of me saying this stuff back and mm -hmm. and then deciphering what those rhythms are and then and then suddenly i have something on a page mm -hmm. you know that makes a little bit of sense uh and then you then from there i kind of you know you start to add notes and you start to add counter melodies and harmony and then starts to form into a piece of theater which i never saw myself really doing but oh, i really i really enjoy working on it and i can't wait to hear you know we were actually supposed to have a workshop next week with the singers um that got pushed back because of the production on another thing that she's doing um it's a really interesting organization it's called whitesnakeproductions.org uh, in in boston and they they produced a number of like like these huge full-scale on stage mm -hmm. uh um operas with pulitzer prize winning composers and mm -hmm. uh, i think somebody actually did win a pulitzer for one of those Why? and then um and then during the pandemic they did uh sort of these online production or remotely recorded productions that um still were pretty compelling i mean they're much smaller scale but i think we're kind of working out of that model a little bit so it's like a more like a chamber music group with two singers rather than like a whole like chorus and mm -hmm. well, um, that's very cool i mean but that's but that is a case where i i started with a set of words mm -hmm. uh i can't even say they were lyrics they were it was a libretto you know mm -hmm. and, and then sure. and then the music kind of grew out from that so there's always like uh, i i like games sometimes you know like uh bob brookmeyer used to have this thing he called the the white note game where you just you you can only use like the white notes on the piano between uh, middle c and an octave above that mm -hmm. and then what do you do with that you know compose yeah ready get set go you just have those mm -hmm. notes and then it really makes you think you know it sometimes just i mean i know this from um my background as an artist i almost uh, decided on art as a career uh staring at the blank page in front of you is the hardest thing and you just right. have to get something on there and so there are you know games you can play to just get yourself going and i've written some some good music that way some not so good music but it you know it's the process is is always going and then it's just the really it's about the work you know starting something and then finishing it sure That's, well i i'm excited about this opera thing i we're gonna really be watching for that i i just uh uh my wife and i are big fans of the metropolitan opera in hd oh, and, wow uh, and so we just got the schedule today and I uh, noted on the schedule that Terrence Blanchard has another opera that's premiering this yep. season. Yep. I'm thinking, wow, 
because he yeah. had one last uh, he had one last season. He's got another one this yeah. season. I and, tried to see that and it was completely sold out. I couldn't uh, I couldn't get in when I Well, of course, you know, we're 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 far away. So mm-hmm. the way I do it, I also have the app for the Met. And I it's like a subscription, but we can watch them anytime we want then on our because I can stream it to my TV, you mm-hmm. know, but we pay for that uh, for that subscription to get those. And uh, but because, uh, yeah, we like opera when we used to go to the, before COVID, we would go to the theater, you know, to watch it at the local movie theater. And uh, I became an opera lover that I never knew I was as a result of it. But I think that's very cool that you're you're doing that, man. That's awesome. Um, I want to sit, uh, kind of shift gears just a little bit as we kind of start to wrap things up. Hmm. Uh, you know, you've played with a lot of other great musicians in New York and and elsewhere. And would you share with my audience, you know, maybe the number one or number two couple of things that you've learned from your association with other professionals and then kind of link that to what advice do you give to your students or would you give to a student who's aspiring toward a career in music Hmm. uh well the first one is a little easier to answer than the second one but the first you know because i've played with just so many great musicians in new york people who i've you know looked up to all my life is like you know the gods of music and then i'm just like sitting next to them it's like wow how do i wrap my mind this around this um and uh i think i mean there's so many lessons to be learned from doing that one lesson is just there's always somebody listening to you you know don't take any gig any performing opportunity for granted you know always like take it seriously. I mean, even even what you might consider to be a dumb, quote unquote, dumb gig or a stupid gig. And there, those exist. <laughs> I know because I've played my fair share of them. But as soon as you enter that gig with that kind of mindset, then you're really closing yourself off to opportunity and you're setting yourself up for uh, failure in front of somebody, even if it's just yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the people that I admire most in, in this, um, uh, in this career, this discipline, and there are many, many of them, um, are the ones that no matter what the, the gig is, they are just like giving 110%. And so I always tell my students, you know, this is, it doesn't matter if you're playing Disco Inferno for like the 50, 50 millionth time on a wedding gig. Somebody out there is listening to you and that song means a lot to them, you know. Right. Uh, and, you know, same thing with like, I mean, uh, I mean, it's great, you know, the, the hard thing and the great thing about living in New York is um, the lessons that you learn uh don't always come easily <laughs> sure and uh i mean there have been times where i've been playing uh in in a club and just been like yeah this you know this 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 is kind of a drag it's not playing it's not paying as much as it should and you know uh the sound system is just you know the sound guys aren't really doing it you know i'm just like i'm just gonna 
I just, you know, I can't wait for this, this night to be over so I can just go home and just like, and then like, you know, at the end of the night, I see like, you know, Mike Manieri walk up, you know, or, or like, some, you know, some huge, like, um, uh, per, sure. jazz person who could potentially, could potentially like, you know, changed my career in that moment, you know, and like, oh man, like if only I'd like just, you know, done what I was supposed to as a musician, you know, this, I wouldn't, I would be shaming myself right now, you know, right. um, but you know, that's in some ways, like, you know, I can tell, I can tell students that this is what they should do, but they really have to learn for themselves. You know, mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like, you know, business 101, um, the best teacher of success is failure. You know, you have to put yourself in those situations where you can fail and learn those lessons. And then, you know, it hardens you, 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 be, you've learned that lesson and you go on and, and you never make that mistake again. Mm -hmm. uh, but also like I, I've been blessed with playing with some great band leaders. Um, uh, my friend, John Hollenbeck, who's a large ensemble I played in, uh, when I first moved to town, he's done, like, done like three records and tours of Europe and, He's like just the hardest working person I know. Um, mm -hmm. uh, this guy, Ed Palermo, whose big band I played in for over 20 years. I mean, he, that guy is, he's like the unsung hero of band leaders. He's, he's churned out a record almost every year since like the 1970s, he's had this band. Mm. Um, and he knows everybody and he's so humble about it. You know, he's, he's like the most self-effacing musician I know. Um, uh, I, there's lessons to be learned from being in having band leaders like that. Um, and there's also lessons to be learned by being a band leader yourself. Like once I started leading my own band, uh, I started thinking more about how I behave in other people's bands. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Cause there's nothing worse than like being a band leader and you know, you're on tour and every little complaint comes to you you know you may have a complaint about you know the food on a gig but don't bring it to the band leader you know it's like because that complaint is like you as a band leader that complaint is going to be multiplied by however many people are in the band exactly. and and like you've got you've got other things on your mind like like how do i how do we you know get to the next town you know yeah. Yeah. where's the next you know, something, the hotel accommodations are screwed up. Like that's, that's a bigger thing to complain about than like, you know, mm. I didn't like the vegetarian option yeah. <laughs> after the gig, you know, know, so. And, and people do that too. They just, you just want to choke up sometimes. Like, I don't care that you don't, you know, I've got bigger things, bigger fish to fry. Right. Yeah. I but do. as far as, as telling, you know, as giving students advice, who are entering this field. I mean, I teach a lot. That's a big part of, of what I do as a career musician. I don't really, you know, there's that old trope of like, you know, those, those who don't do teach, which I think is like, I don't, whoever came up with that was just, you know, a, a jaded, uh, unhappy yeah. person. Uh, frankly, like the best teachers that I know are also like great musicians themselves. And uh, most 
great musicians that I know love passing on um, knowledge to people who are really interested in in finding out what what makes you tick. So um, uh, I love teaching, and um, but I tell I tell every one of my students who are getting ready to go into uh, music as a career, uh, this has to be your calling. This has to be, you know, it was the same thing that was said to me, like, is there anything else you can do? And what I realized, what I remember when I first heard that, I like, I found it kind of insulting, like, mm -hmm. yeah, of course, there's other things I can do. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I've done them. <laughs> I don't want to do them. <laughs> um, right. But really, what it means is, um, can you see yourself doing anything else? You know, if you can't see anything, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything other than music, then absolutely you've got to pursue this and you have to put everything that you have into uh, furthering your your passion for it and your fire. You know, don't do it if you're like, oh, somebody told me I'm talented and I should do it, you know, because mm -hmm. um, those I, I've seen those students and they don't last very long in 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 the field and i mean college is a good place to sort of find that out hopefully um hopefully there's somebody telling you that you know that maybe you should like look into something doing something else um but i also say you know if you are going to go in um you know 150 percent this is this is what you're going to do it do it but also be open to uh other possibilities be open to know that like just you know playing in front uh, playing at the vanguard you know with your own band is not necessarily the only option for you there's mm -hmm. you there's um there's writing you know there's uh there's writing arranging there's teaching there's um uh arts administration there's all kinds of there's publicity there's there's photography, musician photography. I've just did a photography session for um, uh, this um, um, Afro-Cuban coalition big band, and the photographer was a trumpet player. Mm -hmm. And there's no better person <laughs> to photograph a band than somebody who actually understands what exactly. musicians do. So uh, there are many options you just have to be sort of you have to keep your eyes open and be open to it you know i had a friend who said you know uh the problem with musicians is that oftentimes they're looking for the key to open that magic door and the right. thing is it's not the key you don't have the key the door doesn't open for you uh, or rather you don't open the door the door opens for you you just have to recognize when it's open and you have to be read, prepared to go through it Right. And then go to the next door, which whatever that might be. So that's, and I feel like that's that's how I've always pursued my own career. Is I've just uh -huh. like, wow, this person's asking me to write an opera. Why not? Yeah, do it. Yeah. <laughs> you've got to you've got to have that variability. That ability, you know. Uh, uh, my father was a shrink, and he used to have mm -hmm. a sign that he used to hang in his uh, that he hung in his uh, waiting room, and it used to say the flexibility of your adaptability is the true measure of your intelligence oh, wow you know being able to, to to roll with it and be able to go into uh, you know different things well ben i just have one more question to ask you sure 
is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I have not asked you about? I mean, you've got any upcoming live performances and new recordings, things like that? Uh, I do have some upcoming things. Um, uh, next month, there I, I'm sort of playing the role of the sign man here, but they're great bands. Uh, there's a composer, uh, Erica Seguin, uh, who has a, a, a jazz orchestra with her partner, Shannon uh, Baker. And we're releasing a uh, new CD at Birdland uh, that's coming up. Uh, next month in October. And I think I think they stream those. I'm not really sure. Uh, I'd have to find that out. Uh, my friend Pete McGinnis, who is also a really talented uh, big band writer, uh, has another um, has a gig at Birdland also, I think the following week. Um, and uh, there's this Afro-Cuban uh, coalition that I mentioned. Uh, we just did a record of of um, the Nutcracker. And oh. it's it's actually it's all Latin jazz uh, versions of this. And um, we're doing a bunch of gigs in December for the CD release. And I think he's I mean, I, I don't know exactly what's planned for the um, uh, the release, um, but he's really like he wants to have he's hiring like a choreographer to have like dancers do oh. like a Latin version of <laughs> Of the, uh, of the Nutcracker, which I think is going to be pretty cool. That does uh, sound cool. My own thing uh, is not going to happen until uh, early next year. I've, I'm doing um, uh, some new music that I'm writing for um, this series called Broadway Chamber Players. Uh, we mm -hmm. play in this big, beautiful church in Times Square. And uh, I'm writing some music that's kind of based on um, uh, Asian theme. I guess like an Asian theme concert that's kind of my background uh, my heritage uh, as a asian american um and then uh i mentioned that opera that's also going to premiere i think in march um mm. and then my old record i i'm still in the mixing process and hopefully that's going to come out early next year as well oh, wow. as, as far as you know telling your audience uh listen to more of your podcasts because they're <laughs> they're pretty awesome i listen to uh I think one of I think I listened to a little bit of Darcy James Argues. Oh sure, um, uh, podcast. He's, yeah, that you know, was he's, a, that he's was another a, great big band. Oh man, he writes that I've, scary music. Yeah. I'll tell you. But above all, just you know, go out and hear music. You know, we're in this um, period of time where, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about what um, uh, technology has done to music, and and actually uh, one of the great things about technology is we were able to connect during the pandemic when nobody could hear music in person. And mm -hmm. I think it really, it, uh, it was kind of, you know, a, a panacea in a way of, of at least like getting the music out there and, um, and connecting with audiences in a limited kind of way. But, uh, I guess that makes it not really a panacea, but at least a, a more of like a Band-Aid <laughs> on the situation. Sure, but sure. Um, but now, you know, the question is, is are we going to stay in that sort of model of like, well, I can just I don't I don't actually have to go out and hear music. I can just see it streamed at home. Or are we going to like, you know, real have we realized I certainly have that um, 
audiences are, you know, a hugely important part of music making and are involved in in what happens on stage, whether or not they realize it or not. And I the first time that we that I played um, coming back after the pandemic, it was like, I mean, it was one of the most cathartic <laughs> musical experiences I think I'd ever had because there was an audience there and there were people on stage that I was, you know, the human connection is just so intense and deep. And, you know, uh, people need to understand that, you know, streaming is sure. just not a substitute for going out and hearing live music. And we need people to do that because otherwise it's just not going to go forward the way the way it's been was before so i mean and and i also feel like maybe this is like an opportunity for people to really dig down inside themselves and think you know there's a real human connection that you get from uh listening to music and experiencing it that way that yes. i just i just took for granted before the pandemic happened you know yeah. so that's my hope that's my hope that audiences will just go out and hear as much I'm music right as there, they can I, i'm right there with you looking forward to uh getting in front of more audiences and uh it was fun for me getting back playing again out playing out again this summer and and uh and we had some pretty good audiences a lot of fun so you know it's 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 good to be able to get back to it well ben i want to thank you uh for taking time to talk with me today and uh i certainly want to wish you all the best with what i'm sure is going to be a continued successful musical future well thank you it was a real honor to spend some time with you and talk about music well same here thanks and you have a great uh, great rest of your day all right you too take bye. care bye my discovery composer of the week is Arturo Marquez. Marquez was born in 1950 in Alamos, Sonora, Mexico. He studied the piano, violin, and trombone from 1965 to 1968, and then the piano and theory at the Conservatorio Nacional from 1970 to 1975. Following composition lessons with Guitarez, Heros, Quintanar, and Ibarra from 1976 to 1979, he went to Paris to study with Jacques Castetti from 1980 to 1982. And later on, a Fulbright Fellowship, he took the Master of Arts in Composition at the California Institute of the Arts in 1990. Marquez has been, among other appointments, leader of the Navajo Municipal Band from 1969 to 1970 and teacher of composition at the Escuela Nacional de Musica, 1986 to 1988 and 1990 to 1996. His work has been characterized by a steady exploration of medium and language. This is particularly evident from his numerous interdisciplinary works, theater, dance, cinema, photography, musica di camera, as well as in his search for new sounds, son, atamayo, olesta, and others. Nevertheless, Marquez has not solely followed 
the mixed media and electroacoustic route. Indeed, in the 1990s, such works as Homenaje Igizvante, and above all his series of danzons, employ an accessible idiom in which 20th century popular urban music, its rhythms, and its melodic phrases are incorporated into conventional musical argument. This use of style, also heard in Marquez's film scores, signals an abandonment of the avant-garde elements of his earlier works. The All Music Guide lists four recordings of Marquez's chamber works, three of his concerti, five of his orchestral works, and one recording of his vocal music. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video of a performance by Marquez's Danzone No. 4, performed by the Santa Rosa Symphony. That wraps episode number 111. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be interviewing Chicago blues singer, songwriter, and guitarist Nick Moss. Nick has a 20-plus year career as a blues musician. He has valuable insights into the music scene in Chicago and Milwaukee, as well as his creative process in creating great blues songs. Other upcoming interviews include New York City-based jazz drummer Zach Edelman, Nashville-based singer-songwriter Scott Clay, New York City-based trombonist Alton Sinclair, and jazz pianist composer and University of California Berkeley professor Myra Melford. So don't touch that dial. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, This is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.